Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Brobeck. I'm Kemper Donovan. And this week, we are returning to our beloved friend, Monsieur Hercule Poirot. And we're doing a little bit of a change of pace because we are covering a novella. Mm. Doesn't happen very often, Kemper. No. Tell us what we're covering. Well, it's interesting because technically we are covering two titles, two for the price of one. Oh. The novella that we are covering is Murder in the Muse. However, as Christy did many a time, this is actually a reworked version of an earlier story. So there is an earlier short story called The Market Basing Mystery that has essentially the same plot, certainly the same plot puzzle mystery-wise. So for purposes of our podcast, it makes no sense to cover The Market Basing Mystery separately from Murder in the Muse. So we will be making reference to The Market Basing Mystery throughout this episode, but we shall be more squarely covering Murder in the Muse, the novella. Can you tell us a little bit about the publication history of both of these titles, Catherine? Yeah, get ready for some long-winded publication <laughs> history. Um, so the Market Basing Mystery was published in our old friend, The Sketch Magazine, on October 17th, 1923. Then in the U.S., in the Underdog and Other Stories collection in 1951, so quite some time later. Then in the U.K., in the collection 13 for Luck in 1966. There you have it for the Market Basing Mystery. And then, <laughs> Murder in the Muse. <laughs> Again, more or less the same mystery, albeit novella length. It was first published in the U.S. between September and October 1936 in Red Book. And then in the U.K. in Women's Journal in December 1936. Then in book form in the U.K. in March 1937 in Murder in the Muse and Other Stories. And then in the U.S. in June 1937 in a collection called Dead Man's Mirror, which is named named after another novella in the same collection. Of course, just to be extra confusing, it has to have a different title between the U.S. and U.K. I mean, there are only four titles in there. And in the U.K., they chose to title it Murder in the Muse. And in the U.S., Dead Man's Mirror. The other two novellas within the collection are The Incredible Theft and Triangle at Rhodes. And we, of course, covered Triangle at Rhodes already because that was later turned into the full-length novel, Evil Under the Sun. And I just think it's really interesting that this novella, Murder in the Muse, has an earlier short story version, as does Dead Man's Mirror. It has an earlier short story called The Second Gong. So three out of four of the novellas within this collection have alternate versions. We can very easily explain, I think, why it's called Dead Man's Mirror in the U.S., the collection. And it's because uh, we don't really use the word muse in the U.S. Yeah, that's true. Murder in the what? Yeah, (laughs) murder in the huh? Fair enough. I think it just goes to show how off the beaten path these novellas are, but in a good way. You know, Christy often talked about the fact that if she had her druthers, so to speak, she would write much shorter mystery novels, which is why she often, you know, had to pad out her novels. And she even complains about that within the voice of Ariadne Oliver in Cards on the Table, for example. So I think some of these novellas, including this very one that we're about to discuss, I think are Christy at her sharpest 
because she doesn't have to engage in any padding and she can just tell the story exactly as long as she wants it to be get in and get out. I have some arguments for that that we can um, against that rather that we can perhaps address later. Absolutely. In terms of the differences between the short story and the novella, we should just note that obviously Murder in the Muse is longer. It has different character names and genders, actually. A lot of the the genders are reversed between the two different stories, Um, but more or less exactly the same plot and certainly the same puzzle mystery at the center of both stories. In the earlier story, in the market-basing mystery, we have Inspector Jap and Hastings and Poirot eating breakfast in the town of market-basing. Their meal is interrupted by a local constable who wants their help in investigating an apparent suicide in a local mansion by a man named Walter Prothero, who is found by his housekeeper, a Miss Clegg, who suspects a couple by the name of Parker who have been staying at their mansion. And we will see the counterparts to all of these characters in a moment when we we focus on murder in the muse um and it is also worth noting that hastings is the first person narrator of the market basing mystery he is not the narrator in murder in the muse which is narrated in the third person so that is also a huge tonal difference between these two stories in fact he uh he just gets excised out of murder in the muse yeah and in fact in in murder in the muse this is a rare poirot jap joint (laughs) It is. Which I love. And, you know, of course, in the David Suchet, we get the full team, especially because this was an early episode, an extremely early episode. But I do like when we we have a Poirot-Jap pairing without the interference of that pesky Captain Hastings. Aw, poor Captain Hastings. I know. So that's what we have here. Catherine, who is our victim in Murder in the Muse? It's Mrs. Barbara Allen, and she's a widow. She lives in a flat in Bardsley Garden Muse, and she's been shot, albeit suspiciously, in a locked room where she's found by her friend slash companion, Miss Jane Plunderleith. All right. Well, let's go through these suspects. First up, we've got Miss Jane Plunderleith, who, of course, lives in the residence and found the body. She's the roommate, and from the beginning, she acts slightly odd about the whole business. We will get very much into that in a bit. Then we have um, Charles Laverton West, who is this sort of pompous, but, you know, on the rise MP, and he's engaged to Barbara. And then we have Major Eustace, a former army officer in India, who is a very sketchy character and appears to have been blackmailing Barbara. Yikes. And that is it. Because <laughs> this is a novella, folks, so we don't need, you know, 15 characters who could have done it. That's it. I mean, one of our shorter suspect lists, Kemper. Yeah, I find it refreshing. All right. World as it appears to be, Catherine, take it away. Our beloved Jap and Poirot are having a very nice evening out together, which, you know, I really like the idea that they just have these companionable dinners, have some luxurious food, and then go for a stroll. It's It's very lovely. I like it. Anyway, this happens to be Guy Fawkes Day. You know, we get the entire remember remember the 5th of November and um, we get fireworks and explosions going off in the street on their stroll. And they walk along a path that actually includes Bardsley Garden Views. And Poirot notes that it would actually be the perfect evening to kill someone because no one would be able to tell a gunshot or a scream or anything else amongst all the noise. 
Well, famous last words, Monsieur Poirot, <laughs> because the next day, Jap calls him to ask him to come back to Bardsley Garden Muse because the police have been called in for an apparent suicide of one Mrs. Barbara Allen. But there's something incredibly odd about the manner of her death, and Jap wants Poirot's insight. So here's what's up. She was found in her locked sitting room slash bedroom. It was all one room. There is essentially like a sitting area within the bedroom. And then the very the bed, big bedroom. Yeah, the bed part. Huge bedroom. She had a bullet wound through her left temple, but she was holding the gun in her right hand. And this is pretty suspicious because that shot would be nearly impossible to pull off. I mean, don't hold a gun as you're doing this, but try it right now. <laughs> it's, it's incredibly awkward to shoot yourself in your left temple with your right hand. In other words, this looks like a murder that was staged quite badly as a suicide. There's also apparently no reason to think that she was suicidal. She's engaged to this high profile MP. And according to her roommate, Jane, she seemed very happy. Right. So when Poirot's in the room, he notices that there are the following things. And boy, bear with me because there's going to be a long list right now. There is an overflowing ashtray of cigarettes. Poirot is sniffing the air while he notices this. Keep that in mind. The windows are bolted. The door was locked, supposedly from the inside, but the key is missing. The lady wears a pricey watch on her right wrist, the wrist holding the gun. And Poirot takes an unusual amount of notice of the writing desk. The writing desk has a pen tray to the left side of the blotter and an elaborate quill and inkstand on the right side of the blotter, although that quill and inkstand appear to be unused and merely decorative. The blotter has only blank sheets of paper on it. The trash can has two or three charitable letters and some circulars. There is no suicide note. Phew, Kemper. Wow. Yeah. There's a lot in that room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Jap and Poirot both interview Miss Plunderleaf, who gives them the information about Barbara's state of mind, that she was happily engaged, she seemed quite normal. She's a very level-headed young lady, Miss Plunderleaf, but she also very, does seem... Very, very calm under the circumstances. She's very calm under the circumstances, but Poirot can sense that she is extremely upset at the loss of her friend. So, Poirot has Jap leave the room. And he pulls his, you know, Papa Poirot confessor act. And he asks Jane why the fire was lit in the downstairs drawing room. And she says that it's the only fire in the entire flat because the rest um, are gas, including the gas uh, in the kitchen. And that's part of the reason why she can't believe that Barbara had killed herself because the gun was there. And she always assumed that if... Barbara would kill herself because it was something that they had morbidly sort of talked about. It would be something easy like the gas because there was so much gas in the apartment. Paro also during this shows her this enamel sort of bobble he's picked up from the floor of Barbara's room, which Jane sort of immediately identifies as part of a man's cufflink. And then during this, she is also asking Poirot, well, the only possible explanation is if there's no key and there's a man's cufflink. Are you suggesting it's murder, monsieur? Perhaps Poirot is. The police canvass the neighborhood and discover that at 9.30 the previous evening, a military-looking gent around age 45 got out of a standard Swallow saloon. 
He'd been previously seen at the residence by a chauffeur, one James Hogg. It's Hogg with two G's across the street. And then Frederick Hogg, a young boy. I suppose he is a relation. (laughs) Um, We would assume so. (laughs) Yeah. He was also in the area and further heard a conversation at the door of the flat in question of Barbara and Jane's flat, where the man said, well, think it over and let me know. I.e. he was not upstairs where Barbara's bedroom was seemingly there is no eyewitness to say that he was definitively upstairs in barbara's bedroom right and so they go back to jane and basically say you know mademoiselle shouldn't you tell the truth and she says yeah okay well the mystery man that they saw was probably this major eustace he presented himself as a friend to barbara somebody she had known in india someone who knew her first husband But she'd also seemed afraid of him. And also that Barbara had been borrowing money from Jane, even though Barbara spent hardly anything. And she confirms that, yeah, you know what? Given that it was Major Eustace, it seems more likely that maybe Barbara would have met him in the downstairs drawing room, not upstairs. So Poirot and Jap confirm that they've already looked into this. And she had been withdrawing large amounts of cash from her bank account. And also the fingerprints on the gun had been wiped clean. During this also, Jane confirms that Barbara herself smoked Gaspers, not the Turkish cigarettes that had been found in the ashtray in Barbara's bedroom slash drawing room. And then they search a hallway cupboard, which is filled with sporting goods like tennis rackets and golf clubs, and also an attache case, which Jane frantically claims as her own, which immediately raises suspicion. This will come up again in, in, in our clues, but there is, in fact, a laundry list at this point of yes, things within that cupboard. Let's just keep that in mind. Jap and Poirot interview Charles Laverton West, but it doesn't really help them very much or us as readers. That, again, is the MP to whom Barbara was engaged. Then they interview Major Eustace, and they find that he, haha, is a smoker of Turkish cigarettes. They also find a damaged set of cufflinks, so that little piece which was found in Barbara's apartment is very clearly his. And they arrest him for blackmail and murder, and this all just seems to be humming along quite well. We have our culprit here, except back at Bardsley Garden Muse... The duo, Jap and Poirot, again, just together forever here in the story, they find that that attache case that Jane Plenderly seemed so concerned about is missing and that Jane has gone to go play golf. So they follow her to the club where she had, in fact, been seen earlier in the day throwing the attache case into a lake. No, it's not suspicious at all, Kemper. Yeah, we don't see this in the story, but they are told about this after the fact. The police do retrieve that case, and um, it's empty. So that's also super weird. But, you know, Poirot seems to be fully satisfied. He says he now has enough information to go on. He knows what's happening here. And perhaps so will we when we go through some clues. Take it away, Catherine. Clue number one. The too many clues clue. We've seen this over and over and over again, and it's very obvious here. There are way too many clues, Kemper. Specifically at the crime scene, there is the fragment of the cufflink. There are a bunch of cigarette butts. There's the pistol that seems to be in the wrong hand. There's the blotter, etc., etc. So, of course, it looks like it must be a murder that someone is incompetently, super incompetently covering as a suicide. 
Although... Clue number two here is something that Poirot has harped on a bit. We mentioned the smell of the room and how that would be important. The issue here is that the room smells totally fresh. There is no smell. <laughs> it's actually quite, you know, airy and lovely in there. And yet the door and window were closed all night, apparently, after Barbara was murdered. When she was found, the door was, of course, closed because it was locked and, and the window was closed. And there are approximately like a billion cigarettes <laughs> in, in that ashtray, right. right? There are a lot of them. So one would expect that the air would actually be quite stale and full of cigarette smoke. So what gives... And the deduction here is that not only could the cigarettes not have been smoked in there, but the window must have been open all night or else the room would never have smelled as fresh as it did. Because our Poirot knows a fresh smelling room from a closed up smelling room, actually probably because he prefers the closed up smelling room since he is not a fan of fresh air, as we know. Although (laughs) I'm going to put a quibble here, Kemper, because we know that Poirot is a committed cigarette smoker himself. We also know that Poirot hates windows being open. Mm-hmm. So I would ask you, do you think that somebody who smokes a lot of cigarettes in a closed room has any sense of smell left? I think our dear Monsieur Poirot does because he is a supernatural being and omnipotent. So regardless of how many cigarettes he smokes, his nose can sniff out anything that it needs to sniff out. Including the smell of freshness. (laughs) Yeah, including the smell of fresh air. In any case, what that means is that someone has clearly been tampering with things. So this is just more of the same of, you know, what we're getting in the Too Many Clues clue, which, again, might lead us to the deduction that, wow, someone is really covering for him or herself here. This can't be a suicide. But what is our clue number three, Catherine? I think we can call it Christie's Occam's Razor. Sometimes, if you have a lot of confusing clues and information, perhaps you should consider that the simplest solution is often the correct one. For example, does a husband seem incredibly likely to have offed his wife? Well, guess what? Maybe he did do it. Maybe all of these other clues are just covering the fact that the obvious answer was the right one. Or in this case, maybe our deduction should be to wonder, what if it is a suicide? Right. And I'm going to call us out here for this not being a totally fair clue, because this is one of those clues that when you're on the other side of the puzzle, you can pretend is a clue that would occur to an astute reader. I think you have to be supernaturally astute to get there, because so often in Christy, when things are confusing, she has some sort of brilliant explanation for it that does include it's being a murder. But... But I think that Christy, as she always does, plays fair, and she actually gets us to the point of wondering whether or not it could be a suicide and the Occam's razor principle applies um, in a couple of specific ways. So let's go through a couple of other clues that I think get us to the point where I think a regularly astute reader could then apply the Occam's razor principle, which is one that we should always keep in mind. It does often point us at least in the right general direction. Of, yeah. You know, no, I, I think that often, like if you look at a lot of the, even very complicated puzzle mysteries. If you look like who's going to profit off of this, that's often who did it. Yeah. Clue number four, 
We've got a right-handed versus left-handed clue. Oh, another Christie favorite, favorite of the, the golden age. This is also, when we really think about it, a very obvious giveaway, which is very satisfying, I think, to astute readers. The victim here, Barbara, wears a watch on her right wrist. And it's actually funny. It's worth noting in the market basing mystery, since the victim was a man and a naval right. man at that, he did not wear a wristwatch, but he had a handkerchief up his right sleeve. So that was the counterpart clue in the market basing mystery. Rather than a wristwatch, he had a handkerchief. Mm-hmm. And um, we are also told that the pens on Barbara's desk are all on the left side. So the deduction there is that Barbara was left-handed. If you wear your watch on your right wrist, if your pens are all on the left-hand side of where you're writing, that means you are left-handed. And where was that bullet wound again? On the left temple? Hmm. You know who is likely to shoot themselves on the left side of their head? A left-handed uh, person. So yeah, we're getting pushed ever so gently into the notion of this perhaps Although, being suicide. You know, I really want one of these stories to have somebody turn out to be perfectly ambidextrous. <laughs> totally. Or, you know, what someone should use in a mystery, in a murder mystery, if they haven't already, they probably have. My grandmother was left-handed, but because she grew up in Ireland in the 20s, in a very Catholic community, she was forced to write with her right hand because the left hand was the sinister hand. (laughs) So she did everything left-handed except write. Well, guess what? My little sister, who is firmly a millennial who grew up in the United States, had sort of the same thing happen to her in kindergarten. Yeah, not because they thought the left hand was sinister, presumably, but because they just sort of forced them to be right-handed. My poor sister, thankfully she does not listen to our podcast, but she, uh, to this day, uses scissors really weirdly because you're supposed to have left-handed scissors if you're left-handed. Yeah. And so if you ever watch her use a pair of scissors, there's something like weird about how she holds them. Well, my grandmother's penmanship was always terrible because it was just uncomfortable. It's funny that that still gets forced into kids. I mean, it's a really interesting clue. But not the clue in this story, <laughs> sadly. No. This is more straightforward. What is our next clue here, Catherine? We've also seen this before. It's a lit fireplace. And Paro calls attention to it, so it's played very fairly. You know, the other thing that he notes in the room, which we also mentioned before, is that there are no papers of importance in the garbage. Also, no indentations or anything on the blotter. It's all clean paper. And... You know, you would think that the top page of a blotter would have something on it, but no, not here. So clearly something has been removed, and the fact that there's nothing of import in the garbage cans is suspicious. But what do you do, Kemper, with important papers that you want to get rid of? Hmm. Well, you wouldn't tear them up and put them someplace where they could be pieced back together again. You would burn them. So the very obvious deduction here is that either something was taken off the blotter and burned or something was left elsewhere and was burned in the fire downstairs. Or both. Or both, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and hmm, I can't imagine what piece of paper could have potentially been in that room were it a suicide rather than a murder that would need to be destroyed. Could it have been a suicide note? Potentially. 
the blotting paper that would have had indentations of the suicide note, potentially. Mm-hmm. All right, our final clue. It is the aforementioned laundry list. Oh, such a Christie classic. So we are told that in that cupboard there are, quote, three umbrellas, one broken, four walking sticks, a set of golf clubs, two tennis rackets, a neatly folded rug, and several sofa cushions in various stages of dilapidation. And then we, in a separate sentence, we are told about that attache case. It gets its whole sentence, which means the attache case must be meaningless. It's a red herring. So something within that laundry laundry list must be significant. And hey, wait, where did Jane Plunderleith go again when she was seen throwing away that case? Was it a golf course? Oh, it might have were, been a golf course. Were golf clubs smack in the middle of that laundry list? And wait, are golf clubs either right-handed or left-handed? Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. Let's take this home, Catherine. Barbara was being blackmailed by Major Eustace. And she was terrified of the scandal that it would cause to her fiancé because he is such an image-conscious rising MP. And Barbara was out of money. She was out of ways to cover it up. So she was desperate. She was despondent and she was desperate. And she killed herself in order to cleanly end things. It was a suicide. It was a suicide. We have to get a a bit of backstory tacked on to the ending to explain exactly what the blackmailing was. Jane tells us all this, her her roommate who knew everything. She got involved with a man in India when she first went out. She was only 17. He was a married man, years older than her. Then she had a baby. She could have put it in a home, but she wouldn't hear of that. She went off to some out-of-the-way spot and came back calling herself Mrs. Allen. Later, the child died, and then she came back to England, and she fell in love with Charles. So she had been holding herself out as having been previously married in India, but she wasn't. And that is, of course, what Major Eustace, who had been an army officer in India, knew. So that's what he was blackmailing her for. I suppose she could have just called the wedding off (laughs) if she was worried about what that would have done to Charles Laverton West as his wife. But she truly loved him. And she was just, I think, saddened by the idea of not marrying him and having to live out the rest of her life. So suicide seemed the best course of action, sadly. So here's what happened when Jane Plunderleith found the body with a suicide note. She realized with white hot rage, flames on the side of her face, what had been done to her dear friend. And she decided to frame Barbara's blackmailer for murder by staging the suicide to look like a murder. So, of course, initially, Barbara had been holding the gun in her left hand, which she had shot into her left temple. So Jane switches the gun hand, puts it in her right hand. Mm -hmm. She removes the suicide note and the top page on the blotter so that there are no indentations of said suicide note. She burns those. She moves the cigarette stubs from downstairs where Major Eustace had been speaking with Barbara to the upstairs sitting room. She also takes the cufflink piece that she had found in the downstairs sitting room and puts that in the upstairs to make it seem as though Major Eustace had been upstairs in that room. We don't actually know where exactly the key was when Jane found Barbara. But what we do know for sure is that Barbara did not lock her door when she killed herself since Jane walked into the bedroom without a problem. Then when Jane was done setting the scene, so to speak, she used the key to lock the door from the outside as part of her whole suicide dressed up as murder ruse. Presumably, she just threw away the key somewhere off the premises or stuffed it in a drawer or something. This isn't specified, but since the key is never found, we can assume she got rid of it somehow. And a key is, of course, an easy thing to get rid of. She also closes the window that had been open 
the entire night. It's kind of curious. Like she didn't really need to close the window. But at that point, I think the purpose of her closing the window is that she's making it seem as though someone is clumsily trying to make it look like a suicide. A suicide, right. Yeah. I mean, the window really could have been open because then one could have said, oh, well, the murderer got out. But I think what she was thinking is that the police will think, she's oh. Laying a, she's laying a trap for the police because she's yeah, she, making it look so ham-fisted that exactly. it has to just be some incompetent criminal covering up a murder. Like, what? What else would this be? Exactly. She's hoping that the police are going to think this person murdered Barbara and then they closed the window because they want to make it seem as as if she's locked in the room and she killed herself, but then that they would have gone through the door and locked the door from the outside and taken the key with them and made all these other mistakes. So she's quite clever. Yeah. But not clever enough for Eku Poirot, of course. No. And yes, the whole business with the golf clubs are that they were Barbara's golf clubs and they were left-handed. So the golf clubs proved that Barbara was in fact left-handed. And Jane very cleverly used that attache case as a red herring, throwing it in the lake, when at the same time she had been destroying the golf clubs one by one as she was going around each hole, which is what frustrated golfers do sometimes. So no one's going to notice a few (laughs) broken golf clubs here and there. Right. Although presumably there are a number of them destroyed across the golf course, right? Yeah, it would have to be a whole set. Um, murder of the golf clubs themselves on the links. <laughs> Ultimately, of course, we get our extrajudicial ending because does Jane get arrested, Catherine? Is there a trial? Does she go to jail? No, she just admits what happened so that Major Eustace doesn't go to the gallows because, you know, Poirot doesn't want that to be on her conscience. But, you know, he assures her that he will, of course, be prosecuted for his multitude of other crimes. Because it turns out blackmail once, you probably blackmailed multiple times, too. Right. He's not a good guy. He's going to be punished. But Poirot appeals to her higher senses and says, don't you want him to be punished for the right things? And she says, "Okay, yeah, you're right. I was wrong and leaves. (laughs) And they're like, cool. Although, I mean, she would have been charged with what? Interference in a police investigation? Yeah. Obstructing a police investigation. Fraud. Well, she doesn't really commit fraud. I mean, she obstructs a police investigation is more or less what she does, right? There's kind of fraud within that charge, <laughs> you know? Yes, I mean, I think that is what she would be brought in on, and Jap because doesn't she seem doesn't, to be too angry well, about that. Well, she also that. doesn't even really destroy evidence because there's not a crime. No, but she tampers with evidence. I mean, she tampers with the body, and she lies. She lies to the police a lot. <laughs> yeah, she does, right. <laughs> she was a I good mean, friend. Yeah, she was a good friend. I think that both Jap and Poirot are fine with that. Yeah, there actually isn't that much Jap-Poirot interaction for an 80-plus page novella that features Poirot and Jap on their own without Hastings, much to my disappointment. But on one page, we had Jap calling Poirot both father, confessor, and old cock, which I really (laughs) appreciated. I love when Jap gets jocular with Poirot. If only he were cooking for him. If only there were better food sequences in this. I also appreciate it, by the way. This is a very, very slight and random reference, but this is the kind of stuff we do on this podcast. Jane Plenderly stays for the weekend at a Laidell's Hall, L-A-I-D-E-L-L-S Hall. And that made me think of The Bird with the Broken Wing from the Mysterious Mr. Quinn collection, which mainly takes place at Laidell Hall. Do you remember that? It's yeah. It's missing 
the S. That was where our favorite uke playing quirktastic victim, Mabel Annesley, mm-hmm. uh, was murdered. I just like when she recycles names. <laughs> and I and I remember it. And I'm like, wait, is that the same place as in a Mr. Quinn story? That's when you know you're probably reading these stories a little too closely, but I know. Where 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 you just decide that there's like the Christie extended universe and that <laughs> you know, they're somehow exactly. all interconnected. Clearly there's probably like a Laydell on a train line that she used a lot. <laughs> And she was just like, sure. In any case, let's talk a little bit about the adaptation for this novella. First, there was a radio play on BBC Radio 4, apparently, in March 1955. And I'm told that it is available on Audible or even YouTube. So if anyone is interested in checking that out, that could be interesting. I do like those old 50s radio plays. Richard Williams apparently stars as Poirot in that one. Of course, the main adaptation we have for this is our beloved David Suchet playing the role of Poirot. And this is, I'm happy to report, the second episode of the entire series. I know. Very, very early. Very early. They're so young. In this first season, they just look so, so young. It aired in January of 1989. We're not even into the 90s yet. And of course, we have Hastings here as well and Miss Lemon. There are a couple of added sequences. In one, Poirot references the year, which is 1935, of course, in keeping with the series. And then he's dictating a letter to Miss Lemon to send to his launderers. And... It's a bit of a stuck-in-his-time sequence for 1989. The trouble is, Mr. Poirot, they just don't understand the letters. Why not? They're Chinese, Mr. Poirot. The bulldog breed laundry is Chinese? Yes, Mr. Poirot. What is the world coming to, Miss Lemon? I'm sure I couldn't say, sir, but when the boy brings your laundry back, he brings the letters back, too, for me to explain to him. And you do? No. Why not? I don't speak Chinese. So what do you say to him? Well, I, I say him color, no very good, starchy. I found it a little cringy. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, and then we also had an uncomfortable musical number called Hindustan in a restaurant that's run by Major Eustace. <laughs> I love all of their establishing scenes for gin joints and whatnot within this series. So mm-hmm. I was I was into the scene setting, but the song was a little cringy, as were the waitresses slash hostesses slash escorts slash almost definitely prostitutes walking around in coolie hats, being sort of miserable. Is it for you? You're getting warm because it's Hindustan. So there's just a lot of weird added yuckiness, <laughs> kind of, in this episode. I don't really know why, because it's not at all within the text. So I just want to point that out, that that's not coming from Agatha. No, I, no, a little bit of an odd choice. I did also like, though, that we get to go golfing with Poirot and Hastings and see the golf sticks being broken, and Poirot gets to golf. Now, there should be a little hole somewhere, and I have to push the ball into it. You see that flag there? No. In front of the big tree, a little patch of red. Ah, yes, good. That's where the little hole is. No. 
<laughs> we will get so many more references to Hastings' golf love. So, you know, nice to see it come up this early. That's true. Nice for that to be a consistent character trait of his. I did find it uh, curious that there is one clue that was changed in the adaptation, that the gun is actually left in the victim's left hand in this version. It's mm-hmm. not transferred to her right hand, it's kind of held awkwardly so that they realize that she couldn't have held it the way that she's holding it and actually shot herself. So they still see that something is up with the whole self-inflicted gunshot. But I wasn't sure why they didn't have the gun transferring hands because I I thought that was a neat sort of a clue in the awkwardness of uh, trying to figure out how someone could shoot their left temple with their right hand was kind of interesting in the original. I liked the production design a lot. I think all the buildings are fabulous. This is also, this novella is the perfect length for a 50-minute adaptation. Mm-hmm. Other than the little bit of padding that they did, none of which I liked, quite honestly, they didn't have to pad significantly. This one really lends itself to the 50-minute format, so I can see why they chose to do it as their second episode, even though, curiously, it's not ultimately a murder mystery, right? It is a suicide. So yeah, um, given that this is one of her outliers, because it's not a murder, it is curious that they chose to do this as their second episode. I mean, but- also, it has a script by the very prolific Clive Axton. And I do have to say, you know, there's no car chase sequence at the end of this one. It's true. They don't need it. <laughs> they didn't need it. And not just the set design, but the costumes are also fantastic. And Miss Plenderleaf in general is really good in the episode. Mm-hmm. Her golfing costume alone, I thought she was really effective and the, and the story hangs on her. So she has to be really good. Yeah, I rarely have bad things to say about these early episodes, and I certainly have very little, you know, other than the unnecessary stuck-in-its-time choices and adaptation. Um, I, I don't have anything else to say bad about this adaptation with regards to how it looks at the source material. Yeah. I think in all, both the source material and the adaptation, it just, especially for where we are in our review of the Christie canon, it was refreshing and it felt like we were dipping back into some of the early classic period. And Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. It's happy to go back to those episodes. Yeah. It's not like we saved the murder and the muse stories for any good reason, but I'm sort of happy that we did because I think this story, it's slight, but it's clever. And I think it's Christy just presenting a nice, neat puzzle mystery for our reading pleasure. And then the Suchet adaptation is presenting it again for our viewing pleasure. And they're doing what we know and love. They're doing what we expect to get out of Christy, both on the page and on the screen. And that's always a good thing. Can't be mad at that. No, I mean, the one thing that I will say, which I said at the top of the episode, is that it's almost a case where I would have wanted it slightly padded out in some ways. Because as we were sort of saying when we were talking about the plot, there's a lot crammed into some pages of this. A tremendous amount of information in a page and a half. I almost could have done with this being a full-length novel. It certainly could have been a full-length novel. You know what it felt a little bit like to me? It felt like an exercise, and mm-hmm. I didn't mind that. It felt, no. you know, and some of the the short stories also feel like an exercise. Like, we've talked about those short stories that feel like a math problem, almost, mm-hmm. or like a geometry or a logic problem with very little else. And this is certainly a lot more elaborate than that. It's a proper puzzle mystery, but, right. it's, but it's nothing other than that. And... I get what you're saying if what you're looking for is 
all the trimmings and trappings of a story, you're not getting that here. But I also think that we have so many of those that I liked this for a change, that it was just the, oh, I, the, I very the precision much, of the puzzle and nothing uh, else. I very much liked reading it. I just think it's like funny that this actually, you know, sometimes when we talk about the full-length novels, we're like, gosh, this seems like this could have been a short story where you get to this one and you're like, oh, easily you could have had more Miss Plunderleaf and more of the backstory between them, etc. You know, you could have easily had much more of that. When the Murder and the Muse collection came out, and I remember we talked about this on our Triangle at Rhodes episode, one of the main criticisms of the collection was that Triangle at Rhodes in particular felt like it needed more because the solution relied on character and she just didn't have the space to draw out a lot of those characters. And that one is actually by far the shortest of the collection. This one is much longer. But then she did just that in Evil Under the Sun. And I totally agree. I mean, there's a fantastic novel version of Murder in the Muse, because Jane Plunderleaf is a great character. Uh, the two men, Charles Laverton West and Major Eustace, are not great characters, but, but they could not, be. Yeah, they could be, because they have very little page time, frankly, to be fleshed yes. out. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's it's a weird case where this actually almost deserved to be longer. But you know what I would argue, and I wonder if Christy thought this as well, I think that when you read an 80-page novella and find out at the end that there was no murder, in fact, it was just a suicide, you're like, oh, huh, clever, that's cool. If you're reading a 250- to 300-page Christie for Christmas and you find out at the end that there was no murder, you might not be okay with that, you know? Yeah. So you're at least taking a risk that you're not giving the people what they want by making this specific idea into a novel, which might also be why she just chose to keep this at novella length. Certainly not something that would bother me as a reader, but I could see it bothering other readers. That is Murder in the Muse. Next time we will be covering a novel. We are very excited to be discussing Mrs. McGinty's Dead. More Poirot. I am more than ready for more Poirot in my life. Absolutely. Very excited to ring in 2020 with more Poirot. If you would like more of us, you can always find us on our Patreon site over at www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. We will actually be covering some outlier short stories from the Hound of Death collection in our next episode for the completists among you. If you would like to check us out over there, see what we are up to, email us at allaboutthedame@gmail.com or find us on our various social media platforms. We're on Twitter at allaboutthedame. Catherine is on Twitter at Brobcat. Our Facebook page is all about Agatha. Our Instagram handle is at allaboutagatha. And we so appreciate the ratings and reviews we have gotten in. We really have gotten a bunch of them recently, but we want more. We would love it if you would add your voice to the growing chorus of Christie fans out there who have listened to episodes and we hope enjoyed them. So give a rating and review if you can, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.